Good morning again. Uh, We are continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark, and we come to a transition text. I said this last week, but uh, this is this little text that we're going to look at this 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 afternoon. Um, I said afternoon. I don't remember. Anyway, this little text that we're looking at this afternoon is a transition from Jesus's final sort of public ministry, where he was in the temple speaking to the crowds being confronted by various peoples, he's now moving towards the cross and he's going to go back with his disciples. He'll teach them on the Mount of Olives. He'll go into the upper room. Uh, But before he get there, he stops. He takes a seat. And he's in the temple and he's moving out to the outer courts, the court of the women, and he sits down and he watches as people bring their offerings to the Lord. And so with that, let's turn to our text. We're looking at the Gospel of Mark uh, chapter 12, uh, we're just going to look at a few verses, verses 41 uh, to 44. Mark 12, 41 to 44. Hear God's word. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning or this afternoon. Uh, We ask that you would encourage our hearts to see uh, the wonders of your love in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you for this poor widow whose heart was full of love for you. May our hearts be the same. Lord, we ask for your help uh, and we ask for your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tithing, giving our offerings to the Lord. It's a bit of a touchy subject, and for a pastor, it's a, it's a little bit of an awkward subject to talk about, right? After all, um, my livelihood depends on it. And that's the thing about it, actually. It's that our livelihood depends on this thing called money, Right? It's not an inconsequential matter. It's not something light. In many respects, it is the matter. Right? We need it for our daily bread. We need it for our roof over our head. For all the essential things as well as for all the non-essential things that make up our living, our very life. Money is not an inconsequential thing. In many ways, it is the, t- the thing, money matters, and so discussing how much is enough to live on touches on something very personal, and our reaction is often visceral when the topic arises, right? There's, we have visceral responses when somebody asks for money or we talk about how much money somebody makes or how people live with their money. All of a sudden, all sorts of feelings come up. For example, resentment Maybe for being asked, that's a feeling that often arises. We, we can be resentful because maybe we get asked all the time. I don't know. 
Resentment for not being thanked when we do give, right? That's another visceral response. Guilt about how much, how little we give. Pride, another response of feeling puffed up about how much we give. Wariness and uncertainty about how money's being used, right? In a church setting, that's a really significant thing. Like, well, I'm giving, now what are you doing with it? Anxiety. Well, if I give this much, will I have enough left to live on? If I give a a large amount, what will happen to my own life, my own livelihood? Sorrow and embarrassment that indeed we have nothing. And in fact, we need help ourselves. See, all the visceral responses when this topic of money comes up, right? Um, It's a touchy subject. There's no two ways around it. And as we come to our text this morning, I want to say at the outset, I'll not be delving into the topic of tithing and what a tithe is and how we discern a tithe and what is an offering and how do we take those two things together. I might talk about them a little bit, generally speaking, but that's not what I want to look at tonight. I don't think that's actually what the text is necessarily looking at specifically. But... This text has major implications for how we think about money and giving that are more fundamental. In fact, how we think about money is at the very heart of this text. Immediately, we are confronted with an extravagant example of giving by this poor widow. And Jesus says she put in everything she had. He says it twice. He says she put in everything she had. And if you didn't hear that, she put in everything, all that she needed to live on. And it ought to cause us to wonder, how did she think about her money? Why did she give everything? And my hope is that this this afternoon that we will see in her gift an unfettered love and gratitude towards God. The Apostle Paul, in that great doxology that we will sing in just a little bit um, at the end of the service, says this, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And my hope is that by examining this extravagant extravagant gift, that our hearts will burst out with that doxology. For from him and through him and to him are all things. And we'll look at this in those three parts. We'll use the doxology as our our structure, as, as our frame of reference. So the first point will just be, from him are all things. That's going to be our first point. Our second point is going to be the third part. It's going to be, to him are all things. And then I want to follow it, the last point, to be through him are all things. So that's those are going to be the three points. A little out of order, so I just apologize at the outset. But first, from him are all things. Jesus and his disciples have left the inner courts of the temple where they had most recently warned the crowds to beware of the scribes. We looked at this last week. And it must have been quite a shocking teaching. Right? It's the last teaching, last public teaching of Jesus. He goes and he says, beware the scribes, because the scribes, after all, were the ones to whom everyone looked to for answers 
And they were the ones who set an example of what it meant to be a faithful Jew, to follow the law. This is who the scribes were. And here's Jesus saying, beware the scribes. Must have been a shocking thing. And you'll also remember from last week that in his warning against the scribes, Jesus particularly mentioned their mistreatment of widows. And I said that I would be looking at it this week. But in verse 40, the verse that precedes our text here, in verse 40, the very previous verse, Jesus says, Beware the scribes, that was a little earlier, but he says, Who devour widows' houses. What an indictment that is. I mentioned last week that to devour a widow's house meant that they took advantage of the widow's hospitality and generosity. And why was it such a big deal? Well, a widow was poor by definition, right? They lost their means of taking care of themselves. So they were poor, and here the scribes were taking advantage of them. Now, I think it's important to note the scribes themselves were not particularly rich. Um, In fact, in the first century uh, Jewish world, they lived on the subsidies provided for them by the people. They were not permitted to charge people for their teaching. Yeah, you know, you go to your local uh, college and you want to sign up for a course and they say, well, that per credit cost is going to be X amount of dollars. The scribes weren't allowed to do that. So they would, the, 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 the leaders would encourage the people to give generously to subsidize their work as a scribe. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with that model, but Jesus is saying that the scribes took advantage of widows in particular. And what I find interesting is Jesus doesn't say, and the scribes take advantage of widows. What does he say? He says, they devour widows' houses. Devour. In other words, they hungrily and greedily ate up what little the widows had to offer. Greed. Greed was at the heart of this sin of the scribes. And what is greed, right? Because we're dealing with a text about money here, and we have to define what greed is. Greed is the belief that we deserve whatever it is that we want, and we deserve more than whatever share we have, right? This is greed. But why did the scribes feel they deserved to take from the widows, to sponge up their goods? Why did they think it was justified to take advantage of the generosity of these poor women? Now, we aren't told, we aren't given a reason, but maybe they believe that they were the source of life for the widows themselves, right? Well, I offer something, they they ought to give it to me in turn. They believe that their teaching, their example, their very person and position in society made them worthy of the life and livelihood of these poor widows. Let me put it more explicitly than that. They believed they were like gods to the widows. The widows existed to serve them. So whatever the widows had belonged to them. And really, this is actually at the heart of greed. It's the idea that we deserve more than others that we are owed more, that 
to take whatever is in front of us is justified because we believe that we are like God in some way. This, of course, justified Adam and Eve, right? They had all the wonders of of the garden, right? They could eat of any tree in the garden. It was theirs, the wondrous bounty of God. And yet there was one tree that the Lord said, you're not allowed to take of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the only thing. And what did they say? Oh, I want that one. I want to be like God. They had everything. I think sometimes we're more subtle than saying, I'm greedy, I want to be like God. Like I don't think any of us go around saying that sort of thing. But we say other things. I've worked hard in this life. And it's a dog-eat-dog world. And if you don't take care of things for yourself and your own, your family, who's going to give it to you? You've got to go out and grab it. Anyway, that's what everyone else is doing, right? We may be really mercenary in that way. Kids are incredibly straightforward with greed, right? Especially little, little ones. You get a toy, you put it in the room. One kid grabs it. They could have like 50 other toys on the other side of the room. What do they do? They just crawl over, grab that toy, and if they are able to speak, they say, that's mine. You know, it doesn't matter who belongs to. That's their initial response. That's mine. It's like might makes right <laughs> in, the, in the world of little babies. Um, as they get a little older, children add some subtlety to their greed, right? Uh, I had it first. <laughs> That's the, I had it first, or I don't have it, so he's not sharing, she's not sharing, right? It's like all of a sudden we're going to shift the blame of greed to the other person. Or another favorite line is, it's not fair, right? As they get even older yet, they do other things, kids. Uh, they run to be first in line. It's like... If I'm faster, I'm first. It's just another form of greed. Uh, they complain about how their friends have more than they do, right? That's very typical. Or they have jealous thoughts, or they get pouty when they don't get what they want. And then when you get to adults, honestly, it's not any different. We just are better at rationalization and justification. We just make more complex rationales for our greed. But by the end of the day, we're still saying the same thing. It's not fair. I deserve. It's mine. And this is the root issue. The assumption that whatever it is, is mine. Misunderstands the nature of things in the world. Yes, in one sense, you know, there is ownership. We have stuff. I'm not arguing for communism. That's just another form of greed. Um, but in another sense, in a much greater sense, nothing we have is ours. Not one single thing is ultimately from us. Our lives are not ours. Everything we have, everything we are, is from God. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth. He took man and he formed him out of the dust of the earth and he took that rib out of the side of Adam and he made woman and they put, he put them in the garden and they enjoyed all the wonders of God's creation and God said, I'm even going to give you work to do. And he said, go, be fruitful, and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. But you know what he also did? He said, you are mine. Psalm 100 says this, 
Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us. We are His. Greed says, I am God, and everything is from me and for me and to me. It is mine. The scribes had it backwards. They pranced around believing that the world existed because of them and for them, and they believed that they deserved to devour widows. What about you? How do you view the stuff in your life? I don't doubt that you've worked hard for it. I don't doubt that you've earned your pay. I'm not talking about whether you receive just compensation for your work. I'm asking how you view everything in your life, your gifts and abilities, your opportunities, your good health, your family background, all the various advantages you have enjoyed in this life, big or small, the mercy you've been shown when you've messed up, your very life and existence. How do you view it? As just dessert? Like, uh, what's how does that old rhyme go? Little Jack Horner sat in a corner eating something pie. He stuck in his thumb and he pulled out a plum and said, yeah, plum pie, right? Stuck out his thumb and pulled out a plum and said, ah, what a good boy am I. I'm the, this, I deserve this. What did you deserve? You stuck your thumb in a pie. There's nothing about your goodness. Everything we have, everything we are, is from God. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. And I want to shift now our attention to the widow, right? Looked a little bit about greed and the scribes, but I want to uh, shift our attention now to the widow as we look at this second point. So from him are all things. We'll talk about through him at the end. And now we're moving to to him are all things. Um, Jesus goes out to the court of the women and he sits down and he watches. Here in the outer court, there are boxes set up and they have their receptacles for for gaining the offering and they they have trumpet-like, I get this is how I envision it, this is what the commentators describe, it's kind of like a trumpet-like opening and you'd come and you would put in your, your gift into these boxes. People would come and go, and the offering would, of course, be used for all sorts of things in the temple and for the welfare of the priests and the Levites. Now, the text tells us that many rich people came, and they put in large sums. You can kind of picture them with their money bags or however they did it, and putting them down that that tube and into the, the coffer. But then a poor widow came. And she took two small copper coins. Plunk, plunk. These two copper coins amount to the Roman version of a penny. And now the Roman version of a penny is even, uh, it's it's actually less than that, right? It's a a quarter of a cent. So like a cent would be one hundredth of their dollar or whatever it is. Um, But this was, this was, these two coins equaled the smallest sort of denomination within the Roman world. So this was like cutting that tiny uh, coin into half or something like that. It was insignificant. 
In fact, it's so insignificant that by the end of the first century or so, they stopped making these coins altogether. They stopped making the the, the penny, the quadrant, the, the Roman coin that this made up, they, they got rid of that altogether. Because why? Well, inflation, I'm sure, and they, they became worthless. But that's the sense you have here. There's these two tiny little coins, and they're completely worthless. Completely insignificant in worldly terms. A drop in the proverbial bucket makes no difference. Yet Jesus says, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put more in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. Now, I am not good at math, but I don't understand. More? More? This is the smallest possible denominations, and these people were putting in lots of money. That, that just doesn't make sense. So what does Jesus mean when he says he puts in more? How is it more? Of course, he explains it in the very next verse, right? He says, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had. There's the the qualifier. Everything she had, all that she had to live on. They gave more monetarily speaking, But they gave out of their abundance. In other words, it was no skin off their back, right? They could go on and and still provide for themselves, their means, their life, their livelihood. They could take care of themselves, and they still had a lot to give. It's a wonderful gift. She had nothing left. Nothing. Her very life, Jesus points it out twice. All that she had to live on. Her very life. So now here's the question you all have in the back of your mind, or at least I did when I read this text. Okay, is Jesus calling me to give everything, all my money, all the money that I own, to give it to the church? Is that the takeaway of the text, right? It's a legitimate question, I think, because it seems to be what Jesus is saying, but I want to press back on that a little bit. I don't think it's necessarily the right question. I think the right question, or the better question, is this. Is Jesus calling me to give everything to the Lord? That's what she did. Everything. To answer that question, I want to go think back to the Gospel of Mark. We already looked at uh, some weeks ago um, in this account of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus. You'll remember him. He was an upstanding citizen, and he wanted to know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How can I enter the kingdom of God? Jesus, you seem like you are a smart rabbi, teacher. I'm coming to you, and I want to know the answer. What must I do? And Jesus says, well, do you know the commandments? And he says, yeah, I've done all of them. And he then says, what? Go, sell everything, and give it to the poor. What does the rich young ruler do? He walks away dejected. He walked away overwhelmed with that impossible task in his mind. The issue was not ultimately the amount of money he gave to the poor. The issue was his heart. You see, he didn't love God with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his mind or with all his strength. And he did not love his neighbor as himself. 
So he was unable to give everything to the Lord. The widow, on the other hand, here in our text, she gave her very life to the Lord. She was commended by Jesus, not for the amount of money, but for her understanding that all that she is and all that she has comes from God and through God and then back to God. What did Paul mean when he said all things are to God? It means that not only is everything created by him and sustained by him, But it means that God is the one to whom all things are due. Everything we have, our entire life. The poor widow understood that her very life was in the Lord's hands and she understood the precarious, I can't say the word, precariousness, that's a word, precariousness of life, didn't she? She was poor. But she had presumably buried her husband. She understood that life was precious and was gone in an instant. She understood all of those things. And that could have driven her to say, God, why would I give you anything? You've taken everything from me. She could have been embittered, right? She could have said, I deserve more than this life. Not so this widow. We aren't told what prompted her to drop her last two bits into the coffer. Maybe she woke up overwhelmed by God's preserving grace to her. Maybe she saw the consolation of Israel in the person of Jesus. Maybe the news of Jesus' coming was so great that she said, praise the Lord, and she gave her last two bits. Maybe she simply was consumed with love for God and love for others that she lost sight of herself. We don't know. But she could have kept one of the coins, couldn't she have? Right? She had two. You think that's a little interesting that that Mark points out that she had two little copper coins. It would have been completely reasonable for her to put one in and keep one for herself. But she didn't. Why? Why didn't she? Because she was grateful to God, because she trusted that the Lord would provide, because she loved God, because she understood that all that she was, all that she had was from God, that her life was held in his hands and that he was her savior and her sustainer, that all things were from him and through him and to him. Friends, what is your chief end? Presbyterians far and wide will say our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What does that mean? It means that we hold nothing back of ourselves. This widow held nothing back. She gave her very life. Jesus in Mark chapter 8 says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? 
Friends, is Jesus calling you to give everything to the Lord? Yes. He's calling you to give your very life to him, all of you. That includes your stuff and your money. And there's a much larger discussion to be had about tithing and offerings and what it looks like to give sacrificially. But at the heart of Jesus' teaching here is something much more substantial than a specific amount to give. It is that everything that we have is for Him, all of ourselves. Money given to the church to missionaries and money kept to feed and clothe ourselves and money that we've just used for whatever, all of it, whatever use we have is ultimately with the aim to glorify God. That's our call, to give our life to the Lord. But I want to look closely uh, at this last idea here. All things are through Him. Right? And And I save this for the last because... What this idea is, what it gets at, is the idea of providence. What is providence? Well, providence is that doctrine that says God upholds and sustains all things, that he provides our daily bread, right? In the Lord's Prayer, you say, give us this day our daily bread. That's providence, that we go to the Lord, the sustainer of life. And in some ways, a very basic statement that reminds us that God upholds us and sustains us and provides for us all that we need, that we have confidence that the sovereign God of heaven and earth holds us in his arms. But included in this providence of God is something so precious that no amount of money and wealth in all the world could ever compare with. Yes, out of the providential hand of God, not only are we sustained in our lives, but out of his providential hand comes to us eternal life itself. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, I am the bread of life. And this is the most remarkable thing of all, because when you think about it for just a minute, We are greedy. That is just part and parcel to being sinners. We are greedy. We are glory thieves. I've used that before. We hold back for ourselves the best portion. Do you remember? uh, I think it was, uh, I can't remember. Maybe it was Samuel's sons who held back. He he was a prophet that Samuel's sons held back the fatty portions. These were priests. And they held back the best portions for themselves. I think I could be forgetting it exactly. But but that's how we all are. We hold the best portion for ourselves. We're stingy towards those in need. We care more about our comforts and our security than we do the cares and concerns of others. And we do more than we care about the glory of God. This is who we are. Ironically, we're a lot like the poor widow bereft, helpless, without means. Because the poverty that we have, our poverty is something that is much worse than being poor with money. It is the poverty of spirit, the soul that is at enmity with God. And apart from Him providing for us this living bread, we have no hope. And yet Jesus says, I am the bread of life. 
And I've come to give you myself. All of me. And that's what he does. He comes to those who would steal from him. Who would try to be God's. Who would take for ourselves from others. He comes to those broken sinners, those poor of spirit people, and he says, I'm going to give you myself. So Jesus, here in the temple, looks at this poor widow. And he's overwhelmed by her generosity. But here's the reality. The Lord of glory sent his only begotten son who didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped hold of, but became nothing, emptied himself, got rid of all of the the wondrous, glorious presence of himself, and he took upon himself flesh, dust of the earth, and he said, I've come to give myself to you. Poor sinner. Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, we've got nothing. But in Christ Jesus, we have all. And if that doesn't move us to sing this doxology here in Romans, it says, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever. I don't know what else can. To know that a God whom we despised and rejected became despised and rejected in order to bring us to Himself and give us all. I don't know what else can. What a glorious truth. As we think about our money matters, which are significant, Think about everything that we are and how it's all unto God. We belong to Him. But the good news is we are His. And He provides for us eternal life. Forgiveness. What a glorious gift. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.